Oh, hi, everybody. How are you? My name is Luke Thomas. This is, um, let's see, Thursday, the 4th of February, 2021. And this is episode 66 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Of course, my name is Luke Thomas. I'm from CBS Sports as well as Showtime. If you are so inclined, please give the video a thumbs up. Hit that subscribe button. What will we get to today? Uh, I can imagine 259 is probably going to be top of mind. Maybe some Kamzat news, maybe some other stuff. Um, you know, whatever you want to get to, that is what we will get to. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, there we are. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, appreciate everyone who tunes in today. Um, let's see, a couple of housekeeping notes. As I mentioned, you know, obviously, um, uh, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe. Always looking to drive numbers. I am going to be doing a post fight show live right here on Morning Combat as soon as the main event is over for UFC 259. So please join me on Saturday night, Sunday morning, obviously, depending on when it ends. But as soon as that main event for 259 is over, so we have a winner between Adesanya and Blahovich. They'll interview the winner, then they'll interview the loser, and then that's it. Then we will go live. So as soon as that is over, um, come here. YouTube.com slash Morning Combat Plus out today, part two of the documentary. Uh, BC's got some other interviews out. We have a show tomorrow. We have tons of good stuff coming your way. Oh, and the resume review that BC and I did. There's a lot of good stuff out there on the MK channel. So send it around to friends. Consume it yourself if you have not. And then come back here after the fights on Saturday night. All right? I feel like that's a pretty fair deal. All gratis. You ain't got to pay for nothing. All right. So with that in mind, let's pull up your questions for today's thing. I'm going to turn the uh, subscribe button off too. There we go. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. All right. We'll go to your questions. As you know, the day before the live chat, I post a thread in the community tab here on youtube.com slash morning combat. You guys fill it up. You guys vote your questions to the top and then we go from there. All right. So with that in mind, let's get started. I have my trusty Diet Mountain Dew. Let's see how fast it can rack focus. Pretty fast. Look at that. It's pretty good. AS73 is a good is a good camera. That's also the um, I wanna say I'm this is the Sigma 28 to 70. F stop 2.8. I think that's right. It's a good lens, whatever it is. I'll double check. I think that's what it is. Uh, and this is uh S Cinetone that I have. Um, it's a little bit I could have, I'm washing out a little bit on the highlights, but other than that, uh, okay, let's get going. Jesus. All right, let's get this. This is an interesting question to start. Uh, hi Luke, you previously stated you didn't like Wonder Boy's chances against Usman. I was wondering why, uh, is this because Wonder Boy has good takedown defense and Usman's Excuse me, this is because, this person is declaring to me, because Wonderboy has good takedown defense and Usman's jab won't be as effective due to Wonderboy stick and move style. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be able to do as much sticking and moving. I think that um, people forget how good the jab is. And one of the things that was really revelatory about Kamar Usman is, again, does he have the, uh, is his jab as pretty as St. Pierre's? No. Is his footwork sort of as light on the feet? You know, real angular in that same kind of way as St. Pierre's. No, not exactly. But it is still highly effective. It is very fundamental. 
uh, in the sense that um, you know that's not that's not a that's not me downgrading it. That's me telling you it's like rooted out of building it correctly. Um, and he's got a long reach. I think he would be able to jab his way inside. I think it might be boring because I do think that Wonder Boy is going to be hard to take down. But I eventually suspect that Usman's going to get his hands on him, and then when he does, it could be boring. But I don't see Wonder Boy being able to mount offense in that scenario. In a scenario where he's backed up, contained, uh, quite physically constrained, he it, it might be close where it's like a ah, 10-9 for the champ, but, you know, could go either way or something. And then you just get enough of those by the time of the fight. I, I'm not telling you to be like some dominating affair, although one never knows. I think Kamar Usman's quite good. But the idea that he just stick and move like he did to Jeff Neal, sorry, I don't... Mm-mm. I don't buy that at all. I think his entries are superb. I think his control is no one has shown to have an answer for. Um, we'll have we'll see what happens if they have another Colby Covington fight because obviously he might have an answer for that that particular dimension of his game anyway. But you know, and listen, this is just my opinion. I mean, I I have no idea if this would actually be true, but I just tend to think a guy whose entries are that good, who can work off of angles, who's got unceasing cardio, and has you know, this very developed takedown game and, you know, this sort of tree of like, if he does this, I do this. If he does that, I do that. And then it follows it all the way out. He's got all of the steps. I'm not so much memorized, but, you know, muscle memory at this point all the way through and no one else is even close. So I could see Wonder Boy making a decent account of himself. It took Woodley 10 rounds to get, you know, a draw and a win. Uh, But I do think he would do it. I do think he would do it. Since 58 of Overeem's 66 fights ended with a finish, is this the most kill-or-be-kill-driven fighter we've ever had at the sport's highest level? For sure in the heavyweight division. Yeah. Yeah. McGregor's a bit like that too, right? McGregor is like, you know, (laughs) they don't go to the scorecards too often, whether he's getting his hand raised or not, you know? Uh, What? Let's see. the, um, The Holloway fight, he got a decision. And then he got decision in the second Diaz fight. Is that the only one? I'm trying to think here, like Brimage, no, Seaver, no, Brandao, no, Mendez, no, Aldo, no, Alvarez, no, Habib, no, what am I forgetting? Cowboy, no, Dustin, no, both times, no, like I think that's just it, maybe maybe I'm forgetting one, but you get the idea, like Connor's kind of like that too, and in big, big fights, you know, uh, the first Diaz fight, obviously not. But certainly at, at heavyweight, Overeem has had a style where, you know, it's a real testament to the fact that he just goes for it. That's really what it tells you in the end. Um, and maybe inadvisably at times, or, you know, uh, he just ran into store of, you know, interesting style clashes that made it for what it was. But uh, I tend to think that Overeem, even when he had that sort of second act at heavyweight, where he was much more of an outside fighter, where he was really trying to... Uh, slow fights down to a degree where he could pick and choose when he wanted to engage and not. That mitigated some of it, but by that point, his chin had been worn down to a degree, and so it didn't take as much. In fact, Richard Mann, out of uh, Fight Forecast, I believe is what it's called, uh, he's a writer, he's a, uh, an employee over at Fightmetric, he had done some work about this, that um, Overeem's, Overeem's numbers were somewhat unusual because for a guy who gets knocked down as much as he did, he had a lot of TKO wins himself. It was sort of a he was an outlier in that respect. But to your point, it shows right exactly what you're describing. This is a guy who got you know even in win. Look, look at the Walt Harris win. Like that's one where he got a stoppage win, 
and nearly got stopped himself. That's sort of emblematic of his career. And I think it's because, you know, he probably had some defensive lapses, but I think he was just always in a position where, you know, maybe the, the Rosenstruck fight, and I'm sure you could pinpoint one other one. Like, obviously, the fight against Verdum uh, sucked in Strike Force, if memory serves. But uh, in general, he was kind of always in a position where he was uh, uh, going to be able to land something, but by contrast, the same was true for his opponents, and he could get caught flat-footed um, through the process. I think even in the Batterhari fight, he got rocked before he won. I have to go back and double-check, but it's always been like that. He's always been in a position where he was defensively vulnerable, even for those adjustments at the end of his career that provided some longevity. But, you know, you know what, what an incredible run he had. Any artist you can suggest similar to Cameron? I listened to the Purple Haze album after Wednesday's show, and it was amazing. Well, that's to me, you know, you could say whatever you want about horse and carriage or anything else, but Purple Haze to me was just one of the best albums front to back. What an incredible, incredible listen that is. Um, this is a better question for people who are much more, <laughs> for much more in the weeds on this. Frankly, I'm a little bit out of my depth on it. Um, the amount of time I used to spend listening to hip-hop has, outside of working out, totally declined. As an individual who is looking to study striking at a novice level, which fighter or fighters would you recommend studying to emulate essential fundamental striking habits? It's a good question, but I wouldn't answer it just the way you're looking at. If you are trying to understand any... Well, let's, okay, let's keep it to what the question is. If you are trying to understand striking at a novice level... I don't merely recommend to you, and I will give you what you're looking for, but let me just say something about this. The trick to it is not just to get somebody who's got real fundamental skills and say, okay, now I've got a good roadmap of what that is. Let me now go on to other things. Because the reality is um, the best way to get ahead is to know the thing you're looking for while understanding the various levels and what it takes to get to that level. Like, for example... You're asking like fundamental striking habits. Okay, so let's talk about GSP's jab. It's a pretty fundamental core punch, right? It does a lot. It creates distance, helps him disguise for angles, helps him set up other punches, helps him close distance if he doubles up on the jab or even triples up on it. I mean, there's all different kinds of functions, right? But the execution of that jab uh, is pretty fundamental. But to get to that fundamental level, it's like core punch that is widely applicable in a variety of circumstances, it takes a long time to polish it. My recommendation to you is to watch St. Pierre and really sort of look at the way he jabs and maybe use that as a guide if you want. But you should also begin to look at some other guys who have great jabs in boxing. Potentially kickboxing, jab's less important there, but still it could be pretty important. I'd also look at regional fights. Go and look and see how they jab and see some of the differences. See how, um, you know, sometimes that punch from... Uh, St. Pierre, it won't be telegraphed. It'll be perfectly chambered um, when he throws it, like what his timing is to match the, the punch. Because striking can be so many different things. I understand what your question is. I want to get it at a basic level. But like, think about it in, from jiu-jitsu terms. How are you going to get better at it? Just rolling with, let's say you're a white belt, just rolling with other white belts, that will definitely help you improve. But so will rolling with some blues and maybe even some purples, depending on the size disparity or something like that. 
you want you want to get a bunch of different looks. And if you're a purple belt, you're not above rolling with somebody who's a blue. Maybe even if they're a big white belt, depending on things go. And you're definitely not above uh, or below, I should say, rolling with someone who's brown and even black belt. You know, you can get something out of all those experiences that bring together um, uh, a greater picture. So yeah, you want someone's got a great jab. Uh, Saint Pierre is a great choice. You want someone that's got like a really good uppercut. Um, who's got a really good uppercut? You don't see a whole lot of those in the sport um, as like a calling card. You know, uh, I would say Poirier has got some decent ones. You want to look at somebody who's got really good, you know, pull counters, uh, a good left hand, uh, good timing. McGregor's obviously going to be there. So, you know, Adesanya is going to be all over the place. But I, I would just, um, you know, start with someone like St. Pierre. And look at how he sets things up. Look at how he uses it. But watch things below him and then watch things above him. All of it will help you to get to the next level of uh, comprehension that you're looking for. The next level of understanding. You need, you need to not just study that. You need to study the whole, or at least experience, I should say. Study is a strong word. You should maybe study one guy and then experience the rest. It really gives you a sense of the levels and how it's applied and how it could be um, really capable or a limited weapon, depending on who's using it. Because that's the other part. You can have like a really pretty punch, but if your timing is off and your footwork is off uh, and you're, you, know, you don't really know how to do it but for one or two things, it can look like a fundamental jab or something else. But that doesn't actually make it all that valuable or core or central to what the person does. They can make it look pretty. I don't know how fundamental it is. Do you think if you had become a political commentator on YouTube, you'd have more subscribers or views? Like, a lot more. Or do you think you need to be fairly partisan one way or the other, which you don't feel you're capable of being? No, I can be plenty partisan, depending on what the issue is. Uh, you just have to think about it. Can you get a more attention covering a sport the size of American football or the sport the size of MMA. You know, obviously there's going to be exceptions in all directions, but in general, if you have a much more popular sport where, you know, games are averaging 30, 40 million a, a pop, I guess pre-pandemic anyway, you know, for that kind of a sport, that kind of an audience, I mean, how many football journalists have more than 100,000 Twitter followers? In MMA, what is it? Like me, Okamoto, Ariel... Who else as an as a MMA journalist has more than that? Uh, more than a hundred thousand, like none. You know, so, I mean, there may be one or two more that I'm not thinking of, but that you know, a handful. Let's say a handful. Now, how many have it in American football? Like, <laughs> like a couple hundred. You know, it's just a much broader audience. So politics is the exact same thing. I mean, yes, you have to be able to capture an audience. You have to be able to, to have a, a viewpoint that people care about, right? So if that's a limiting factor, then I'm toast. But to the extent that I could do those things, right, in a way that I've done in a similar kind of way in MMA, how big is the audience for that? It's enormous. It's enormous. You can do a ton of that. And I think, frankly, there's a rapacious appetite for that kind of thing on this medium, Um so, you know, if this is sort of a, 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 not a warning, but something to think about if you are having designs about being an MMA media, I get questions about it all the time, you know, can't think about it. How many people could cover, um, you know, American football or American or just NBA and, 
you know, build an audience on platforms outside of, you know, uh, either legacy or even new media, right? So you don't work for a Vox, you don't work for a CBS, you don't work for ESPN, you just build off of YouTube and blah, blah, blah. Dude, I mean, you can do that relatively easily in uh, in American basketball if you are at all bright and industrious. I'm not here to say it's easy, but, you know, relatively speaking, there, there's there's plenty of avenues for it. Hard to do in MMA. Can be done. Can be done, to be clear. Um, and there are advantages to the fact that it's a globalized sport versus just sort of, you know, nakedly national. But, yeah. it's um, You're asking, like, how big is the, the audience for political commentary and insight and or something along those lines, provided you could give it to them, which, you know, again, is debatable, but assuming you could, you can go significantly further. Significantly further. Would love to know your thoughts on your favorite cuddly, benevolent world leader and future Nobel Prize, Peace Prize winner, Ramzan Kadyrov. Politely convincing and not at all forcing Hamzat Shemaev to rescind his retirement. Did you guys see this? Oh, that poor guy. Listen, man, I don't know what the views are of, of um, Hamzat Shemaev. I don't know if he's forced into this. I don't know if he openly embraces, you know, all of the things that the terrible things that Ramzan Kadyrov stands for. You know, we'll never probably never get an answer one way or the other. But uh, fair to say that it doesn't matter either case. They're putting unbelievable amounts of pressure on him. Yeah, that was gross to watch. But what do you expect from that guy? I mean, of all the, of all that guy's vices, this might be the least offensive. Uh, you know, when you've gone on a purge of gay people in your in your territory of which you are a, effectively a warlord, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're pressuring a guy to keep fighting after getting a really bad case of COVID seems uh, quite tame. But, you know, just goes to show the kind of pressure this guy's under. People need to leave Kamzat the fuck alone, man. Just let him be. Just let him recover. I mean, this is the reality, right? Like, if he's healthy... You would imagine he would have designs on coming back, right? That seems like a pretty reasonable That seems like a pretty reasonable conclusion. So if that's the way we all feel, and we just have to wait for him to get healthy for that to be a reality, then why are we leaning on this dude to give us answers about timelines and what he owes the Chechen people or whatever? And I realize that Ramzan Kadyrov is beyond having any kind of rational dialogue. I'm simply saying... Like, Jesus Christ, man, the guy's coughing up blood for crying out loud. Just just leave him alone. Uh, if and when he gets healthy, I have no doubt he will let us know. Okay, and at that point we can resume activities. Maybe he comes back in June. Maybe he doesn't come back at all. I don't know. Either way, I will let him tell us when he's ready, and not a minute before then. If Kamzat never fights again, which probably something um, unlikely, but I guess we'll see. Is he one of MMA's biggest what-ifs of all time? Oh, yeah. He would be, he might be your biggest what-if. There were some other ones. I brought this up before. Mark Ellis. Mark Ellis was another one. I think he was a national, a Division I national champion heavyweight wrestler. I think he had one, maybe two pro fights. One was in pro elite. He got leg kicked. It wasn't a beatdown or something, but he lost... And I remember afterwards, he was like, fuck this. Cole Conrad would be another one. Your sort of first um, heavyweight Bellator guy. Uh, he, he's kind of a bit, a bit of a what if. Another what if is like, to an extent, Brock Lesnar. Like, what if Lesnar had never gotten diverticulitis? What would he have been able to accomplish? I really wonder with, about that. I think that's something to consider. 
but if you're asking like somebody who stopped before they ever really got started, dude, he might be your number one. To come out and do what he has done, and then for all of a sudden to just stop out of nowhere, and frankly, not because he chose to, obviously, because he ha- if, if he doesn't fight again, he will have been forced out by you know biological and illness constraints. Yeah, dude, he'd be up there. He'd be up there. There's some other ones. I, I you know again, Lesnar's an interesting case. Cole Conrad, Mark Ellis. Um, you know, I wonder what would have happened if Megumi Fuji E would have competed at a later generation. She was sort of like your goat before there was really a chance to properly crown one. Um, that's sort of an interesting test case as well. On what platform do you and Brian gauge what is and isn't popular with the fans? BC always implies that a segment may or may not stay based on the fan reaction to it. Eh, it's partly fan reaction. There's no, there's no like formal process. We just kind of look at each other and we're like, do you enjoy doing it? Do we think they are? Like Social Justice Wednesday seems like it's almost there, but not really. We might, we might can that because it just, you know, it's sort of a feel. But there's no, there's no formal like thing we look at as a metric to say, aha, you know, this is good, this is bad. Some things we'll do because uh, we like doing them and they don't necessarily do all that well with traffic. And conversely, we'll do things that we don't want to do, but they're good for traffic. So, you know, you got to sometimes bite the bullet on this kind of thing if you want to grow an audience. So, um, But there, if you're asking if there's a formal way in which we review segments, no, there's not. James Krause said on the ESPN betting channel that he, quote, knows for a fact, end quote, Izzy is lying about his weight, saying that he weighs about, saying he weighs much more than he claims. Assuming this is true, okay, what might this misinformation misdirection tell us? So why would he lie saying he's going to come in at 193 and let's say he comes in 210 or something? Um, why would you lie about that? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to imagine. I tend to think Izzy's probably not lying, but... Um, maybe if you were actually heavier than that, you know, uh, your opponent might think that um, you're trying to come in and use as much speed as possible, use as much movement as possible, and then in the end, what you actually want to do was really leverage additional size gains against them so you kind of plan for a guy who was going to be really all over the place and instead they were a little bit more in front of you not in an easy to hit kind of way but in uh just sort of a different strategic approach and so you'd have the wrong strategic approach so so maybe that's what it would be like oh izzy says he's going to be at 193 and we expect him that he wants to you know he's going to leverage because you're not going to be a stronger puncher than um than blahovich but you could maybe make up the difference if you got you know, under the weight room a little bit so there's a, there's a few things, golly. I mean, they just they just wait until the... If you're like, oh, you can put your phone on, do not disturb. But you guys don't understand how the phone calls happen around here. I can't just say, oh, hey. You know. Uh, all right, let's see. All right. So to answer the question, to maybe confuse, but I don't feel like there'd be a... It's not so much the claim that he's making about where he'll be at the weigh-in. It's about uh, what approach did you build based on what size you wanted to have and why did you want to have that size. I tend to think even if 193 is a little bit 
off. And he comes in closer to like 2, 201. Um, he's still going to – I really believe he's going to he, – Izzy's game has never been about – you know, he, he is a step and slider. He's not a bouncer. But he has – when he needs to get out of the way, that's been – you know, getting the lean back or circling out or something. That's always been a key part of what he's doing. I'd have a, I would be surprised if he abandoned that for the sake of power or size or strength in the clinch. So maybe 193 is not the right one, but that central idea that he's coming in, you know, not a, let's say, let's say this, not a huge departure from where he would normally come in from 185, not some massive correction to 205. I tend to think that's exactly what he's going to do. I guess we'll see, and then we'll judge accordingly. Luke, are you bored of MMA? I was recently listening to some of your old content from a few years ago, which had more variety. You seemed more passionate back then, discussing controversial topics, doing fighter interviews, doing statistical analysis with Eric. Are you just focusing more on MK now? Hope all is well. It's a good question. No, I am not bored with MMA. But I am in definitely a weird moment in my career a little bit. There's a confluence of things that are happening. So let's sort of articulate them here since you asked. Bored, no. But um, there are, God, there's just so many things that are happening. First things first. There were a lot of things happening as MMA was developing that you were constantly raising the alarm about because once it was set in stone, you knew it was going to be harder to undo. When, when MMA, and this is still true to an extent, but when MMA has no protections for various parties other than the promoter uh, and they begin to do things, to get that undone is going to be a lot harder once it's already there than then to just do it. Perfect example, the Reebok deal. The Reebok deal, which will come to an end here very soon, as a matter of fact, uh, when it was instituted, this was a huge deal. And the the claims that the organization made about how it would be rewarding to the fighter where at the time, some of those claims were unknowable. We didn't know how much, for example, kits were going to sell with someone's name on it. Turns out, fucking almost nothing. Um, and, you know, they're all, oh, this money's going to the fighters. We're not keeping this, blah, blah, blah. And then it sort of turned out that this was, there were some benefits for some in terms of not having to chase down, f- you know, flaky sponsors. But in general, there were a lot of people, particularly that's close to the top of the bill, who took tremendous amounts of hits. And I was saying at the time, you know, here's a very easy question to answer. Are you putting back what you're taking out? You're taking out a certain amount of money from ad rev for what's on these fighters gear. You already know what that is because you already have this tax. You don't allow certain sponsors. For example, at the time they did, and I think this is still true. They didn't, well, it doesn't really matter anymore, but they didn't allow like guns and ammo, uh, as a, as an, for, they did it for a time, but they eventually banned it, right? So no guns. You couldn't have Glock, for example, as a sponsor, whether you think it's good or bad. It was true. And so they knew how much money was coming in. They had a pretty clear idea of what that might look like. It, it, it would have taken a little bit more work to figure it out. But, you know, it seems to me if you're going to take that out to replace it with something else, it should be on relatively equitable terms. And I don't think any effort was done to do that. So here's my point. During these moments, you're like raising these alarms because you're like, holy fucking shit. These are major industry changes that are happening. And, uh, you know, trying to push back on them to the extent that media can, I think is a really important thing to do. Some of that stuff is just all baked in now. You know, they're just the, 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 the industry has consolidated in certain ways that makes some of that alarm not necessary. Another thing is, dude, a lot of these questions have been answered. You know, how much do fighters make? Oh, it's a big mystery. This was a huge topic of debate for years. We kind of know what the answer is now. Yeah, it's 20% or less. 
every year. That's what it is. And they can say whatever they want about that. I got a big bonus on Christmas, and isn't it great that I got a check for ten grand out of nowhere? And of course, those things are nice, but it doesn't change the reality that we now basically know because we have information. Eh, this is what they make. Um, and as it relates to anti-doping, I you know, uh, I tend to think that not even just inside MMA, but b- well, well beyond MMA. Um, China just instituted a bunch of policies that are going to start start putting people in prison who facilitate dopers. We have now the same thing. The Rodchenkov Act passed on a bipartisan basis. We aren't even anywhere close. I mean, not, I, I, I don't think in my lifetime we will see rational anti-doping policy. I don't believe that that is true. So that's kind of baked in um, as well. And so you know, some of these bigger, like really vexing questions have been have been made simple. Um, we have we have found answers to them. So that sort of uh, has, I think, mellowed me out um, as well. I also have to say, you know, uh, I've just had a fair number of experiences that have really soured me on deep parts of the industry. You know, I don't do a lot of interviews for a reason. Um, I don't think that the vast majority of them are honest. I don't think that the vast majority of them are interesting either because of the interviewer or the fighter or both. I don't think the vast majority are all that necessary. Um, There's still still room for them. And to the extent that I either have to do them by virtue of work or I want to do them, and I I will. But short of that, I'm not not doing that anymore. Um, Yeah. So it's just not a part of it. And also I have to feel like, I, I will say this, and I'm sure some of you probably picked up on this too, which is, the pandemic was weird, man, because I, now that every, I mean, at this point, people are just trying to live their lives and just not get COVID. You know, you wear a mask, even if you don't want to or whatever, like it's not worth fighting these battles anymore every day. There's not as many people running into a target and having a maskless flash mob. And there's not as many people, you know, there's some people still hectoring other people about mask wearing, but basically we're just all, we're all just trying to do our best to get through this shit for the most part. Right. I mean, I think that's really what it is, but when we watched it play, when I watched it play out and I saw what was revealed within the community, I never felt more distant from it than I did at that time. When I'm watching people, uh, you know, whether it's Dana White saying things that were just outrageous and totally ignorant on a, from a scientific uh, consensus at that point, and frankly dangerous, you know, uh, trying to have shows. And I know he says that there was a commission involved. It was never named, and I don't believe that. I, just, I don't know why you would go to California with another state's commission, but okay, you know, I'm not going to relitigate all those battles. When I saw that and I saw the fighters, you know, understandably wanting a paycheck but you know what we were, what we were advocating for was enough relief and or a steady wage from the ufc so they would be able to have i mean again all these old battles about what the fault lines were that and revealed them and i found myself very much looking uh look on the outside looking in um so that's the way it felt and um and yeah so you're asking me, I've been boiled down and distilled to like, what are the things that I care about? Now, I would still love to do statistical analysis with Eric, but I think he's deep in the weeds on his PhD program. And, um, you know, uh, that is always something that's going to interest me. But the thing that has interested me of late, which is unencumbered by all of this pandemic stuff and unencumbered by all of, no matter what your opinion is on it, and unencumbered by the phone, the absolute phoniness of these interviews, 
and um and 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 all the politics too dude like listen if i say something even remotely controversial remotely telling you right now someone's manager is going to hit me up and ask what the fuck is my problem and now i have to answer to them not i don't have to answer to them but it's like you know now my now this is a thing in my life that is going to be ongoing until i talk to this person again right because because everyone in this industry wants you to believe that they're the toughest people around when in fact the fighters certainly are quite tough but outside of what the fighters do in the octagon this industry is filled with the uh how do i say this exactly it's not just phony bravado these are people that in huge part in huge part have um I think very core issues with confidence and security about who they are and their place in the world. And any kind of perceived questioning of that produces a fucking nuclear blast from Godzilla. And so at some point, do you just get fucking tired? I think also the other part is, you know, let me just say this, man, I've been working two jobs since I was 18 years old. Uh, I've always had at least two jobs, sometimes more and just grinding and grind. I've been doing shit like this for 16 years at this point, you know, 16 years. I'm tired. I'm tired, man. I'm tired. I'm very tired, you know, and I'm trying to catch up, uh, with just like living my life a little bit, having a hobby, reading a book, playing with my daughter. Not worrying about all the fucking rigmarole of this broken industry, dude. Broken. Super broken. So, do I still like the fights? Yeah, I love the fights. Um, do I like the fighters? I like a lot of them. I think a lot of them are fine. You know, some of them are great. Some of them are truly special. You know, your mileage is going to vary on that. I don't dislike MMA, and I'm certainly not bored by it. But I'm, I'm very tired. And I have a chance now with CBS Sports to, you know, dial some things back and, and focus in on them. But I also have this, like, unresolved um, creative energy. So I'm trying to – I have to get out of the current space that I'm in and then, you know, work through this current period, which will only happen with time. But for the time being, you know, I've paid my dues times a 1,000. I don't give a fuck what anyone says about that. Um, and you know, all the things you used to see, I probably did to a degree out of necessity rather than interest. And I don't have to do things out of necessity for the most part anymore. I only do them out of interest. Um, there are some exceptions obviously here or there, but in general, that's pretty true. And so it might look like, oh, I was fucking ranting and raving and blah, blah, blah before a bunch of questions have been answered. I don't have to do things I don't want to do. I'm definitely going to steer as far away as I possibly can from shit that's phony. You know, I'm kind of tired, to be honest with you. I feel like I've paid my dues. And um, I love the technique side of it. So I'm going to focus in on that for the most part. Just started BJJ, getting smashed. What is your most humbling moment as a white belt on the mat? Jeez. Um... There's a bunch of them when you start out. I mean, every day can be bad depending on what you're doing. Uh, is there like a really... I told you this one. This was not in BJJ. It was in wrestling. 
And uh, this is when I was, I mean, this maybe was like my like second or third practice or something. I mean, this was early on. And, uh, and uh, you know, my music is all angry fucking, either it's on the metal side and it's angry or on the hip hop side, it's angry. There's very little, I mean, there's some mellow stuff in the middle. You know, you get the occasional Allison Krauss or Deer Tick or something, but for the most part, it's that. And I remember like I put like music on in like my headphones or I think I was going to get back on the Metro to go home. And uh, the music was like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm the toughest motherfucker. You know, some some kind of act of bravado. And I was like, I don't even deserve to listen to this after how badly I was humiliated today. And I didn't quit exactly, but I was just one of those things where like, sometimes you just start getting thrashed and you can't stop it. And it just goes on and on. It's like, fuck. Uh, it was one of those days. Now, it turns out like I didn't have a day like that literally ever again. But it was one time where... I couldn't even listen to my own music because I felt like a fraud who didn't deserve to listen to like, you know, chest thumping hardcore hip hop. Hi, Luke. I know you don't particularly care about, uh, excuse me. I know you particularly don't like Tito Ortiz because of his views on the world. I don't hate Tito. I pity him more than anything else. But there was an interview a few months back where he was talking about his parents being heroin addicts and how he could have easily followed the same path and have a victim mentality. Also, how he missed most of his educational life because of this. With that being said, do respect what he has done at least and the adversity has come through. It seems like he had a hard time uh, with the MMA community. Yeah, he had a hard time with the online MMA community. He does not have a hard time in person. I've seen it. I've told you guys this story before. I remember before he fought, um, was it Liam McGeary? Who the fuck did he fight that night? Rampage. No, he fought Rampage. I remember the night he fought Rampage. Uh, this is when Bjorn Rebney got called a dick rider by King Mo live on television. That was a fun night. I was there for that. This was in Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. And I remember, like, if you just look at the online chatter about him, you know, he was, oh, Tito's the worst this, the dumbest that, the most awful this. Just, just you go on Sure Dog forums or anywhere, just relentless negativity all the way down, man. You were like, holy fuck this guy, you know. And then he walks out to the arena and it was just a hail of cheers. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, it could not have been more different. And then I've seen him do meet and greets. It's the exact same thing. Dude, you cannot believe you know, MMA Twitter is some segment of the population, both left and right, or, or whatever the various cross-sections are, that pretty clearly have a tenuous relationship with the fan-going event experience. They did not match what people said about Tito even a little bit. Not, not, even, a, not even a smattering of booze. Nothing. Dude, this, they roared for that guy. And how that was one of those moments where I was like, "Woof, that that there is." I thought he was going to get booed walking out, you know? Nope, he got cheered. He got more cheers than frankly anyone. Um, so keep that in mind. Now, where are things today? I don't know. Listen, I don't hate Tito. I don't know Tito enough to hate him. I've had a few conversations with him in person. Um, I recognize his significant contributions to MMA. But now he's a public official. I'm not judging him as Tito Ortiz, the guy who used to be a fighter. I'm judging him as um, city councilman who says things that are 
absolutely outrageous, ignorant, frankly dangerous, and at a bare minimum, just quite negligent in his duties. He is in way over his head. He has no business being on that city council. Do I recognize that this is a guy who has dared to be great, either in athletics or outside of it? No doubt about it. He is also, I think, one thing that folks, particularly his critics, miss about him is he is a very gifted and I think quite natural self-promoter. You know, he wasn't waiting on someone else to hand him anything. He went and got it. Yes, of course. It is impossible not to have appreciation. And, and, and you know, people are all kinds of different things. They're nice. They're mean. They're, they're uh, giving. Sometimes they're rude. I mean, they're, they have views on one thing that totally makes sense to you. They have views on another you can't possibly square. And you have to understand that a person's going to be many of these things. And it's going to make understanding their, their you know, them, them uh, harder to come by because it's not going to fit neatly into some kind of conceived idea about what a good or respectable person is. So it will be harder to make some of those determinations. Although in this particular case, as a public servant, no, I don't have anything good to say about Tito Ortiz. As a person who came from a disadvantaged background and found, frankly, highly unlikely success, yes, of course, that is very much the American dream in certain ways. Um, yeah, he, he can be both. He can be both. But if you're going to say things and then run for office and then try to make policy based on pro, I'm not talking ignorant, I'm talking profound ignorance. Yeah, you're going to get raked over the coals, not just by me, but by a lot of folks. And he has all of that coming to him. I don't have, I don't have any sympathy for any elected leader, not one of them. You are literally choosing to be in a role and you are asking for individualized public support to get there. And you want me to feel sorry for you once you get there because people are mean? Go fuck yourself. Don't care what level it's at, whether it's school board, city council, governorship, state senate, federal senate, anything. Don't care. You chose... These are not... You know, if you're... And even if you're a political appointee, you accepted it. You accepted it. But especially if you're an elected official, you ran for office to get votes. And now people are saying mean things to you. Well, welcome to what it means to be a public servant. If you're not in the business of understanding the, and the significance and the responsibility that comes with zoning laws and um, you know forms of municipal planning and whatnot that goes into being a city council, tough shit zero sympathy for that. Who would win in a fight if they were the same height and weight? Stylebender versus Habib. Well, are we stretching Habib out? Is he the same? These questions are impossible to answer because how are you going to make Habib the same size as Stylebender or vice versa? And then once you do, what happens to their game? I mean, if you made Habib the same size as Stylebender, which is to say, you know, six foot four or something, yeah, dude, and he was still as you know, and all of the things carried up to the point where he was, you know, two hundred and five pounds, one hundred and eighty five pounds, depending on the fight. Yeah, he probably beat the shit out of Stylebender, but um, I don't know what that proves. <laughs> it's like if this guy who didn't exist did exist, what would it mean? Fuck if I know. How true is it, if at all, that the UFC heavyweight division is so shallow because most elite athletes above 200 pounds tend to choose professional ball sports over fighting? 
There is obviously a pretty strong degree of truth to that. It is hard to know exactly how significant it is, but I, I would imagine that it's pretty significant. Um, but I, I always caution folks to be a little bit careful about this. You know, Michael Westbrook was a guy who, you know, played for the the then Washington Redskins and got into a fight with his own teammate. But he had been training in martial arts at that point. I think judo, I think he's like a black belt. For a while, he was a purple and then brown. I don't know if he kept training, but he got a black belt in jiu-jitsu not long after his NFL career was over. So he'd been training all that time. Um, that he tried to fight MMA, and he was not very good. And we're talking about an A an A plus athlete, you know, a, a ridiculously good athlete. You can go and look up some of his fights. I think they used to be on Twitter. I don't know if they've been, you know, or not Twitter. I'm sorry. Um, YouTube. Let's see. Are they still there? Just Michael Westbrook fights. You can't find the Steven Davis one. Let's see. Oh, you get a little bit of the Steven Davis one. In the cage with Michael Westbrook. And it looks like it's Ron Kruk. I don't know who it is. Try fight MMA. Yeah, you can, this 12 years old, these videos, 13 years old. You can go and take a look. He was not that good. He was not that good. So I do think that you are missing out on a crop of athletes who, uh, if you were able to get the ones best situated for MMA from that, you would get a remarkably better light heavyweight and uh, probably a middleweight and heavyweight division. I do think that is true. On the other hand, what you really want to be careful about is, I've, I've said this before, it's sort of a couple of things. It's one, it's taking those shots. That was something that Mark Ellis, the Division One national champion, just did, did not ever seem to get comfortable with. And I always talk about this, people overlook it, but like you have to dish that shit out too, right? You got to get into mount. You have to fire elbows into someone's face. That sounds like, oh, I could definitely do that. But it's a lot harder than you think, especially to do at an elite level, to really just go after and tear into another person that way. Um, and a lot of these guys don't have one or the other or both. They don't really have the ability to take a shot. They don't want to take a punch to the face. Um, they're not good at it. They lose their bearing. They lose their composure. You know, you get a guy like Noguera. Is Noguera going to run the 40 and 4-3? No. But you can drop a haymaker on that dude's face in his prime, and it's not going to change or derail him. He's going to be going for the exact same things he was before that heavy, heavy shot landed. And so you just you take that bearing for, giving, or for, for granted. Excuse me. You should not. Those are not automatic traits, and not everyone who's a good athlete has those kinds of things. In general, in any kind of athletic activity, having good athleticism is going to transfer over and mean significant things. But in a sport that's not really a sport, where we're just taking things that humans do, frankly, mammals and animals do in the wild uh, for, for territory and reproductive rights, and we've just pulled it out and made it entertainment and put a few rules around it, and these are very primal things. Not everyone has that constitution to do that very well. And even if they could do it, how well could they do it? It's not automatic. So the answer is yes, it'd be better, but not as much as some of the, I think, more uh, Pollyannish views of things tend to go on this. You see a lot of people being like, oh my God, it would transform it. Yeah, probably a little bit. Some, sure. Not as much as you might imagine.
If Aljo beats Jan, does Sagan get the re- Sanhagen, excuse me, get the rematch for the title after it? And then what if Jan wins? Story plays the same. I feel like he should get it. Sanhagen versus Aljo 2, it'd be happening a little bit quicker than you might imagine, but okay. It's not the worst thing to have a rematch for a promotional angle. And then two, if it's not Sanhagen, who the fuck is going to be more deserving of that title shot? I mean, I guess if there's some tricks that are played and they got to do Aljo Yan 2 right away, you know, that changes the equation a little bit, but who the hell else would it be? He seems like your number one contender with a bullet, man. Thoughts on the octagon canvas appearing more slippery than usual. Since the UFC's return post-COVID, I recall noticing many fights where some fighters seem to be losing their footing and not having as much grip. I assume this is from the constant sanitizing spray between every fight. Do you think this could be some concern that fighters could potentially be put in a disadvantageous position because of this? I would need to know exactly what substance they're using because sometimes you guys ever use the hand sanitizer i mean this is obviously very different but you guys ever use the hand sanitizer and some kinds they're slimy and then sometimes they're just total liquid and they go away right with a little bit of rubbing i don't know which one uh they have but in general um it tends to be that more water is better for traction think of it as like you're trying to turn the page and you can't so what do you do you lick your fingers and then you rotate the page uh that's why they pour water on their feet. So I'm not of the belief that more liquid, depending on its consistency, is the problem. Usually the problem is ads. The canvas itself, if you have like wet feet, is actually pretty, there's decent grip. There's no grip on the shiny ads. Um, also, I don't know if there's any numbers to justify the claim that since the pandemic, it's been worse. Uh, unless they've added more ads or whatever, but that has historically been the problem: is those big stickerish ads that they air or uh, that they put on the uh, octagon. That's that's the problem. With the recent releases of JDS and Overeem, we are finally seeing the heavyweight division turn over to the young guns. Outside of Gone, which heavyweight do you think will have the brightest future out of Aspinall, Romanov, Spivak, and Dawkus? Also, do you see JDS and Overeem finding any success outside of UFC? I can't tell if um, I can't tell if if um, Overeem fully retired. I saw his thing on like social media, like the legendary run comes to an end. He, does he do one more somewhere else, or does he call it a day here? I don't know exactly. JDS, I guess we'll see. I have a feeling JDS is going to end up in like bare knuckle or something. That's going to make me really sad. Um, out of all of the ones you mentioned, Aspinall so far has the highest level I've seen. Romanov, something of, uh, I, I, frankly, I'm not sure. Spivak, I think is okay, not great. And Dawkus is still, uh, I got to still have a wait and see approach with him. Obviously, he's done some really nice things, but I want to see how he looks as he moves up the ranks a little bit. Aspinall is the first to me of those names that you've listed where I could be like, aha, okay. Um, here is somebody who's showing real promise, you know, a wide variety of skills, a good sense of things, not, not a finished product by any stretch, but you know, calm makes good decisions, right? That's really what it's about. Like what kind of decisions does he make? Aspinall makes very good decisions. So you can just build on that, right? As a former Marine, what is your position on gun control, personal gun ownership in the United States? Well, it's quite an evolved one. 
Um, what's the short answer that I could give so I can move on? I don't really feel like getting into this. The short answer is that there might have been a time that now no longer exists, but there may have been a point in the history of this country where um, significant gun control efforts probably uh, should have been implemented and could have worked. But by virtue of the ubiquity of firearms in the country, I don't know that that is any is, is very true. Um, there's plenty of debate by criminologists about how firearm ownership went up during the 90s while crime dropped. Um, uh, you know, and obviously gun owners are going to have a pretty ro- rosy view of that. My basic view at this point is that you cannot get rid of the guns here. Uh, confiscation is not realistic. Um, and, uh, and so if you're going to live with, and if you don't know this, by the way, there's enough uh, firearms in the United States for every man, woman, and child to have at least one, right? So we're swimming in firearms. Once you are at that point, uh, it becomes a very different equation. I read a book by Jennifer Carlson. Um, I think that's her name. She wrote a book on, I think I recommended it on this chat previously. She has the sequel to the book, which I've not read. I have to find it. She did an update on policing. What, what is the truth about policing and firearms and what is the relationship there? And, but the first book that she had written was about why did gun ownership go up in a dramatic way in this country uh, after the 2008 financial collapse? And not just in terms of aggregate, but what you actually see with gun ownership now is that um, there's a ton of African-Americans who are moving into the pro-Second Amendment movement, a lot more women. Women, I think, account for the biggest driver of growth in terms of what audience uh, has uh, uh, gotten the biggest in that time since in the last 12, 11, 13 years. That's women. A lot of concealed carry. You look at the numbers on concealed carry, they are much less likely to commit any kind of firearm violation than others. And so you just live with certain realities where like um, for many people, uh, guns and the culture around that are part of their community. There are ways, I think, to live with weapons in society. Um, while I do believe that if you know, if you look at Japan's constitution, do they consecrate in the constitution a lack of gun ownership? And when you have that culture, obviously, you're not going to have nearly the same kind of problems that I think we do. Even if I I recognize that the vast majority of firearm deaths each year come from suicide. Just so happens that's the exact same method my mother chose. So you would imagine I'm going to have some thoughts about, you know, uh, I do believe we should should have a society where uh, someone who wants to take their own life can. However, if someone is mentally ill and has access to firearms, which is exactly what happened to my mother, uh, you know, the the lax nature, I think, of gun ownership is a problem. Um, So what I would say is, you know, we just have to live with what the situation is at this point. But I believe that um, restrictions much closer to and this is the thing that gun enthusiasts will tell you, like, oh, these restrictions would be terrible for gun ownership. Like, not really, not really by the ones who actually are committed to the letter of the law. The, the folks I know who are like really hardcore gun enthusiasts, my friend Chad Dukes in Northern Virginia is one of these kind of folks. These are the folks that have, in general, typically the best kind of um, stewardship of their own co- collection or uh, weapon 
weapons. They have a gun cabinet uh, or a gun safe in some variety. They um, sort of act, children have no access to the extent that the ammunition can be separated. Um, they do that to, to go to the firing ranges like Silver Eagle that are well-maintained, that have lessons as part of it. Like, you know, that part of gun culture, I don't, I don't ever really worry about them. It's, but it's like the ones I went to before where I went to this place in Northern Virginia to go to a gun range once. I was trying to fire a Glock 17, uh, which is a very easy weapon to fire. But the guy behind the counter weighed, I'm not kidding, 400 pounds, had a belt that looked like Batman's tactical belt. He must have had seven or eight sidearms on him and something crazy okay yeah he had like we had uh, tactical gear on his thighs for like knives and shit and then uh turns out that someone came into the place like a month or two later and there was a shootout and the place caught on fire it's like <laughs> that side of gun culture i don't i don't necessarily think is all that um sacred uh, in preserving. So the guns are here. They're not going to go anywhere. What are you going to do about it? The answer is, I think, something along the lines of what they have proposed with um, almost similar levels of what it would mean to have a car ownership um, is something I'd be, I'd be in favor of. You cannot get rid of them. You can merely enforce best practices, try to make sure that there is better ways to handle suicides or limit them, um, try to make sure that there are better firewalls between mental illness and ownership. Um, you know, what you do about school safety, I think is something of a se somewhat separate issue. Um, but they're here, you know, I, I, I don't know this idea that like, you're going to make that different. Oh, we, we're going to collect 200 million guns. How, how would you even do such a thing? Uh, it's utterly impossible. But the idea that like these forms of, and by the way, most forms of gun control um, have broad public support. That doesn't make them necessarily good policy, right? We can argue about the policy depending on which one that it is. And I, there's a bunch I would not be in favor of. And they're right too, by the way. One thing that gun enthusiasts are very right about is that when people who are not in favor of the Second Amendment or something like that, they're like, but you don't know anything about guns, which is true. Um, there's a quite a degree of drop-off between what somebody knows and what they loudly pronounce when it comes to gun policy as it relates to guns. On the other hand, um, they also overstate the value of that argument because if I can just read, in fact, well, it's more than reading, but if I, you can study these matters and you can reasonably ascertain or make an argument about the outcomes that these weapons produce in various communities for whatever reason, um, having a clear understanding of the difference between you know, a 7.62 round and some other kind it's not necessarily really central to the debate. The debate is about harms, solving for those harms, and what kind of policy interventions you put in place to produce those. So yeah, I'm a little bit all over the place on that one. Um, I don't mind it, and for people who are really good about it, I, I don't. You know, there's nothing to say to them. But the idea that like the laws that we have now are sufficient to curb, or as far as we can go in curbing irresponsible, negligent, or otherwise preventable deaths, uh, I don't think it's true. I don't think that's true at all. And I think the hardship that some of the gun owners claim that they would suffer by virtue of that is overstated. Whilst we always knew that Jan Blachowicz was a decent hitter even early in his UFC run, 
what is the adjustment he has made to the point where he seems to be knocking his opponents out more frequently and emphatically? Before he was kind of fighting all over the place, he might take him down for no reason, or he would he wasn't mindful of his range. He is much more mindful about um, he's patient, and he is much more mindful about. Wait, wait, by the way, that patience got him in trouble a little bit in the Jacare fight, right? And it kind of got him in a little bit of trouble. Actually, got him in a lot of trouble in the Tiago uh, Santos fight because what happened in Tiago Santos fight? He, he was very, very patient. He stayed out of the way. And then eventually he came and tried some blitzes. And it was when he tried the blitzes that he got dropped. And once he got dropped, that was the end of it. But he had kind of abandoned the patience. So he didn't, like, radically transform his skills. He definitely got better all the way around. Like, he's got good combinations, good accuracy. But he got a lot more combative patience, right? Knowing when to attack, when not. I think his timing got better as his technique got smoother. And I would say more to the point, he just fights more in his terms now. He's better as a striker than he is on the ground. Obviously, he can work on the ground if he has to. But he's much, much better standing. And so he is not putting fights where they don't need to be. He's not attacking without any forethought. Everything is now a much more considered process. Where am I good? Where am I not as good? Let's try and keep the fight where I'm good. How do I do that? What things should I avoid? Now, what do I have to worry about for this opponent? And it has just leveled him up. He just, it's a lot of maturity. It's a lot of, some of the things that you guys see these like high, high level pros like Adesanya do, or anybody you like who's really successful, you kind of take for granted, man. I'm telling you, you got to watch LFA, which is a step down. Not not like a, an insulting way, but like, you know, these are guys still very much putting it together. And then you got to watch a couple steps below that. And you'll see guys, you're like, you've been training for two years and this is what you look like. Yeah, dude, fighting is hard. Fighting is very, 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 very hard. It's super difficult. And you guys, these guys who like make waiting for the appropriate time to attack, they make it look like it's just the default position. It is not. You have to grow into that. You got to build your skill set to get to that place. Uh, and that's hard to do, but he got there. He got there. So he just has much more combative uh, preparation, fights on his terms. He has focused much more on being a striker. That's cleaned up a little bit. And then he doesn't uh, he doesn't go when he's not supposed to. And that has made a huge... Yes, there are probably a, a, some things I could point to with his individual levels of individual technique choices. I've not done enough recent film study to give you enough of a clear sense, but I do know that. I watched a couple of his fights. No, I watched three of his fights yesterday, two days ago. Uh, and even from one fight to the third, you could see there was this slow change, you know. Is Cyril gone Jones without the meanness? He looks like a prodigy, especially in that division. Without the mean, that's a good question, man. Man, that's a good question. Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, maybe. I th I just tend to think he's a. Listen, here's one thing I think about Cyril that needs to be noted. Cyril's had what? Less 10 or less fights? Not not many. I, I don't know what exactly the number is. I'm not going to look it up here cuz we're short on time, but let's say less than 10 or less, something like that, right? He knows he's not fully developed as a fighter. He knows that. He knows that. He knows he can win, but he knows that dude John was like very undeveloped and still able to do insane shit to these guys 
Plus, he had a bit of a wrestling base, which, you know, at that time in MMA translated better. Like, a wrestling base is always going to translate well to MMA, obviously, for any number of reasons. But it was really beneficial back at the time, you know, late aughts, early, you know, 20. So he, because he fought at UFC 100, right? So he was even before that. He was in the, he was in the, uh, the late aughts, John was. You know, when you watch at that time and you were a wrestler, you that was a very – it was like being a jiu-jitsu guy in the generation before that. It was just incredibly handy, you know. Um, so with that, and he was able to do all kinds of shit to these guys. Cyril, I, I don't know that he's not mean, although you're right. He doesn't, you know, have the same kind of, like, brutality to his game that John does. But I also think it just comes from recognition about what he's got to win on at this point given what he's up against. John never really had to worry about that at really any level. Everywhere he went f- until the Gustafson fight, really, uh, maybe a little bit in the Vitor fight, no one had anything for him. Like, Rosenstruck had something for him. You know, the level, the difference between them wasn't as much. Guys, I cannot overstate this. I'm not. I'm not making this up. Like, if you've never seen... Do you guys know who John Jones fought in his UFC debut? Okay, some of you are going to know this. The answer is Andre Guzmao. Who was Andre Guzmao? Guzmao was widely expected to win that fight at that time. No one knew who the fuck John Jones was. And Guzmao was a guy who had had some decent, if not outright good success in the IFL, which was a relevant promotion that had gone out of business around that time. Um, Roy Nelson fought Ben Rothwell, I believe, for the heavyweight title uh, in, in IFL. Um, Chris Hordesky was a sort of a, uh, well, he actually got ground to a pulp by Ryan the Lion. Was it Ryan Hart? I think it was his name. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. But the point being is, um, everyone thought Goose Mao was going to win. And then some guy out of nowhere goes in there and then, he, I, I don't think he lost a round. And then he, I, I don't know if it was next, but like soon thereafter he fought, um, Stefan Bonner, and was chucking this fucking guy. I remember Bonner would get double underhooks. John would wrap over the double underhooks and then chuck the guy in the air. You know, like it was nothing. You were like, what the fuck? And then all the way up, whether it was Matt Yushchenko or Vera or whoever the fuck, Jake O'Brien, dude, he would just run over them. So with Gon, um, I, I don't know if it's just a lack of meanness. Like, does John look really mean in his fight with Thiago Silva? Or Santos, whichever one it is. I can't remember anymore. Santos. He didn't look too mean to me. Did he look real mean in the fight with uh, Reyes? Maybe the last couple rounds. First three, he didn't look that mean. He looked not mean at all. His meanness is a function of the bully that he can be. You know, I'm not saying he's only a bully. I'm saying he can be one when he's got such a gap on these guys. Cyril doesn't have that gap. So, you know, he has to be much more careful. You know, uh, John, it was, they could do, they could not touch the guy. They couldn't touch him. There was nothing they could do. He was just, he was just a, he was incredible. He was incredible. He was incredible to watch. Uh, Luke, how much weight do you place on opening and closing odds in order to predict an outcome? Not much. Enough as a rough estimate is the most I would give it. How do you present hip stiffness due to sitting? Get off your fucking ass and move. Walk. 
you know, do hip circles, deadlift. I don't know. Don't sit on it very long. Stand. Do you think commentators and journalists in the sport have a responsibility to find out how to properly pronounce fighters' names? Yes, of course. For example, the name Magomed is pronounced Muhammad, and you could hear, hear Magomed Ankalaev's corners pronounce it like Muhammad very prominently while yelling advice during his fight last Saturday. You have all the commentators say Mac Magomed. Do you think it annoys fighters like Habib and Zabit to have everyone mispronounce their names? No, I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, yes, of course. You have, a re- you, have to, you, have a re- you have to put in a little bit of effort to get it right. Um, but they asked those guys with tape recorders, say your name to me. So I'm not, I'm not saying this person who writes this is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But if they're saying Magomed, it's because they were told to. And again... These dudes from other places, they'll be like, yeah, my name's Magomed. Just because they don't want someone to fuck it up or, you know, it looks like one thing and it's pronounced like another. They just say to pronounce what it looks like, They, you know, just to make things easy on themselves. I've seen that before. But I, I know John Anik is like, tell me how to pronounce your name. And they get him to do it not once but twice, you know. So if they're saying it, that's what they're being told to say. I think John doesn't – I'm pretty sure John doesn't want to do a disservice to fighters like that. If, if at all, he can avoid it, you know. Let me pick a couple of good ones here. Uh, Look, what will the show look like when things are back to normal in regards to in-person versus Zoom shows? Can't imagine travel three days a week to do in-person shows, but who knows? Uh, No, no, there would not be. For a time, the plan was to just get back to Mondays. So Monday, we would go up and we would do the show and... um, And then Wednesday and Friday, it would just be what it is. Or Monday, we would go to New York, and then we would fly out somewhere. And so then the the Wednesday and maybe Friday show, particularly the Friday show, might be live on location or something. I mean, that's, again, Morning Combat has barely scratched the surface. I signed a three-year deal. We've barely scratched the surface of what it can and is supposed to be. But assuming that there's no fights and it's just three, you know, regular-ish shows, the plan initially was once everything is back to normal to go to uh, New York just on Mondays. Now I don't know what the fucking plan is. I don't know. I, I was actually, we had a conversation about this when we had the meeting about the merch and everyone was kind of asking each other, like what's the plan? And no one really knows. Obviously we're going to go back to this. We're going back to the studio on this coming Monday. We got a bunch of uh, stuff we have to record for showtime. So they're going to bring us up. There might be a room service diaries. I don't know yet. Don't get too excited about it just yet. But, um, but Monday we'll have one of those. So like we're definitely going to go back. Um, but the regularity of it, I don't know. I, I legitimately don't know. I don't know. How has fatherhood changed you? Did you always want to be a dad or was it a development later in life? No, I never wanted to have kids until all of a sudden I just wanted to have kids. And I don't know how to explain this to people, but basically your biology just changes you. It just changes you. Like one day you're just kind of like, you know what? I think I actually would like to have... A child in my life. You would ask me that for 30 years, the answer was no. Not, and that, not, not, not like, eh, no, no, no. And then it wasn't. I don't, I, don't, I don't really have a good explanation for you. I tend to think that some of this stuff is deeply hardwired into our genetic makeup, and um, I can't really escape that, can I? Uh, 
how has it changed me? I don't know, man. I've only been doing it for a couple of years, so I don't know a whole lot. I can say when I watch videos of like kids getting hurt, um, I have a lot more sympathy for the kid than I used to. In fact, I, it's hard for me to find the humor in them sometimes just because, um, you know, because my daughter's very little and, you know, I don't want her to fall and that kind of a thing. So it has changed my view of, I'll tell you what, here's a big one. There's many, you could give a million answers to this. Here's one. I found the company of children a lot more entertaining. Not just my own, but other ones too, you know. I used to hear a kid crying on a plane and it was like, you know. I had I had noise-canceling ear, uh, headphones for years, you know, just because just, I couldn't handle any of it. And now, obviously, no one wants to hear a kid shrieking, but it doesn't. I, uh, their, their welfare and their well-being mean a lot more to me. Not just my own, but the other ones. And, um, and their company, like the funny things that they say and they do. It has, it has radically altered my perception of children, for sure. For sure. Um, all right, let's call it a day on that. Reminder, of course, documentary is out. Reminder, there are interviews. I think Megan Anderson's out there. We got the Aljo interview out there that BC did. Check those out. Show tomorrow, 11 a.m. in the East. Please be there. Hold on, let me put this on. Uh, please be there. And again, tell your friends, tell your moms, tell your gun-owning neighbors, tell your non-gun-owning neighbors, tell them all, right after the fights, Saturday night, your boy, right here, post-fight show, live, we're going to get to everything, all the title fights, the whole nine yards, it will be epic, okay? So, come around, stick around for that, all right? So, like the video, subscribe, thank you guys so much for watching, I greatly appreciate it, and until next time, stay frosty.